The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Uh, so if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. And uh, we're returning to our study of church history. And, and last week, our subject, or we got started into, was Baptist in America. And so far in this study, we've come across, we, we've stretched across many centuries of church history. We start with the founding of the church, of course, with the Lord Jesus in the first part of the first century. And uh, we've carried that all the way through until we've come up to close to the time that we have religious freedom in America. And this really has not been an easy road for the, the people of God, for the history of the church, because there's always been this vigorous persecution. And every century that we've talked about, there has been this persecution. And that was to be expected because it began with the treatment of Christ. This is what Jesus said, or he made this comment in John 15. He said, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And when Jesus said that, we know that he always tells the truth. And maybe that's not a truth that we really want to hear. But we look at the history of the church in the beginning, right after Christ was crucified. And we find uh, that the apostles were scourged for their preaching. They were told not to preach. Several times you read about that in the book of Acts. And there in Acts it tells us that the persecution in Jerusalem was so great that the, that the people were actually driven out of the city trying to escape that. The Apostle Paul even talked about, made a reference to at least this in 1 Corinthians 15.32 where he says there that we have a good indication that he was put into the arena with wild animals. But the thing that we have to realize about this is that the persecution was designed by God. And I, maybe that seems strange to us, but probably not as strange when we think about what God did to his very own son, that he put him out here for us to endure the shame of the cross. And so this was God's plan. Persecution was his plan to move the church out of Jerusalem, to keep them out of their complacency, to keep them moving forward. And through that, through all of this that they went through, that gave them the strength to survive the many different things that they would faith and, uh, face. And when they came out of that, their faith was so strong that they were able to endure no matter what the opposition. And that persecution of God's people continued for 1,800 years. We have been hated by people of every religious stripe. And that persecution has gone on, as I said, through the centuries, and it comes right up until the time that we reach the colonization of America. And since that time, there has been an, well, what we could call an anomaly in church history. And that is that we have been living under a government for a little over 200 years now that has actually given persecution of God's people arrest. 
Now, here we are in the United States of America. We can gather right here tonight with all the freedom that we have to preach what we want to preach, to teach the Word of God. We don't have a threat that anybody's going to come in and try to shut us down, try to stop us. Nobody's going to try to throw us into prison for preaching the gospel. And we thank the Lord for that. But I also think that those days are coming to a close. I think that we're facing, perhaps in our lifetimes, a lifetime rather, what uh, could be the end of all this. I really do think that we're living in the lull before the storm. That pretty soon, we're not going to be able to preach the same things that I preached in the service this morning. We're not going to be able to talk about those, those kinds of sins that we talk about today and, and taking a stand against homosexuality and those kinds of things are, well, we're not going to be able to do that without some kind of a government reprisal. And we're going to be told that we can't preach like that, uh, preach things like that. But here's the thing about that. We don't really worry about it. That's, that really shouldn't be a major concern to us about whether the government says we can preach or whether we can't preach. That's to be expected. As I said, we're living in a, in a time that is an anomaly. This is very strange for church history that we'd have this period where we're not having great difficulty preaching the gospel. So we shouldn't really feel like, you know, this, this is, we're not going to be able to endure that because what God has done, he has preserved the church through the greatest of all persecutions, and he will continue to do so. And that's because we have that promise of his that we've used over and over again as our text, Matthew 16:18. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Now, one thing that you and I believe as good patriotic Americans, we do not believe that we ought to cause problems. We don't believe that we ought to resist our government, that we ought to be anarchist. But when it comes to this thing, when the government tells us that we must change our stand on sin and stop preaching about things that the Bible says are sin, that's where we have to call a halt. And that's where we say we ought to obey God rather than men. Well, it is with that thought that I want to return to uh, number seven on your listening sheet tonight, and that is the history of American Baptist. And I can tell you for sure after what I've just told you, that Baptists did not arrive on this continent singing the song, We Shall Overcome, and thank God I'm free, I'm free at last, because that's not the way that it was. When we first came to this country, our people were among the pilgrims that were on the Mayflower, but we weren't free to express all of the opinions that we have as Baptists. Now, last time we, we talked about that, and we're going to review just for a, a five or six minutes or so here as we uh, look at last week's lesson, and that is we talked about the pilgrims, and Baptists were on that ship. We know that they were. The, 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 the people in that time that wrote, wrote about it and recorded the history said that there were Baptists that were on that ship, and we were there, but we were very few in number. And yet the, the, the pilgrims welcomed us to be with them because they were mostly Puritans and they needed all the help that they could get. Baptists were tolerated in the group. And, and we were because we were also Puritans in the doctrine of salvation. And one thing you find to be true about the Puritans, they are very consistent on their ideas of soteriology. Their ideas of ecclesiology differ somewhat. That's why you have Congregationalists and, and others, uh, and, and then Presbyterians and so forth. They have a little bit of different ideas about ecclesiology. But for the most part, they're right down the line. They're all together on the idea of salvation. How are we justified? We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
And so they stood on that, and on that principle, on the principle of the gospel itself, the, the Baptists were tolerated among them because that was for the greater good of trying to get a colony started in America. But as the colony grew larger and stronger, the Baptists were ready for an, their own communion of fellowship. And so when that happened, persecuted, persecution started to arise again. When we started to express the opinions that we have that differed from the existing church, then we start to have persecution again. Now, as you know, the pilgrims, uh, the Puritans uh, that were on the Mayflower, they were mostly church-state proponents. And as always, the church-state is a persecutor. And that's the way it was in the beginning of this country. Now, that, that Puritan persecution uh, led us into a discussion of this, of, of, of how the Massachusetts Bay Colony began to, uh, began to persecute Baptists. And that brought us to the case of Roger Williams. And we, we had to make a point about him because Roger Williams is claimed to be the founder of the First Baptist Church in America. And yet history shows that Roger Williams was never actually a Baptist. Now, he did have some Baptistic ideas. There were some Baptist principles that, that he did hold to, such as church, uh, separation of church and state. He believed in believer's baptism. He believed in soul liberty. Those are things that he stood for. And when he started to express those sentiments, along with some others that I told you about last week, such as refusing to, to uh, swear allegiance to the king, that he was banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And that's when many people believe that the First Baptist Church was started in America, that Roger Williams started the Baptist Church in Providence, Rhode Island. But as I said, he was never truly a Baptist, and so we can't claim for him that he started a Baptist church because somebody who's not a Baptist can't found a Baptist church. So what he did, what Roger Williams did when he returned to England to secure a charter for the colony of Rhode Island, at that time he really got confused on his beliefs or changed his beliefs. When he came back to the United States, he had, or, or to the colonies rather, he had no dealings with the church there at all. He separated from them. So I don't think that we could really call him the proud papa of Baptist in America. Well, that lead, led us then, well, who are we going to give that honor to? Who did start the first Baptist church in America? And so we talked about America's first Baptist church. And I think that that distinction should go either to Hansard Knollys or to John Clark. Both of them had established congregations uh, in this country. Um, Hansard Knollys had his in Dover or in New Hampshire and Knollys, uh, well, Knollys in New Hampshire and then John Clark had his in, in Newport, Rhode Island. So one of them perhaps is the one who started the first Baptist church in America. Now, still reviewing, the next thing that we talked about was Baptist in government. Now, if the Lord would allow us any pride in what we've done, aside from preaching the gospel, as I said last week, we can be proud of this, that the Baptists are authors of religious freedom in America. And, and it was Baptists that really suffered the most persecution of all the people that were here. Uh, Baptists were jailed for their preaching. And yet it was those very same persecuted Baptists that actually became the staunchest allies of the colonies in the American Revolution. It was Baptist preachers who encouraged their congregants, people in the church, to take up arms and to fight against England and to try to fight for this thing of religious freedom. 
Now, again, I, I kind of have to return to this idea about whether it's right for, for someone actually to rebel against the government and whether the American colonists right in doing that. We're not going to tackle that one tonight. But whatever happened, we know that God used it. God did something great out of that. And we have our country, and we do have freedom of religion, and we've been able to preach the gospel around the world. But it was that relentless support of Baptist preachers during the Revolution uh, that helped to win religious freedom. And as we were going through that period of time, Baptist people were gaining some very influential friends. And this is really how it came about. Baptists uh, who fought for the revolution and preached about these things in their pulpits began to gain friends, men like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. And it was Madison and Jefferson that did help to establish religious freedom in this country. Now, the thing that many of us may not understand is that Madison and Jefferson didn't have an idea of trying to start another church state or even a Christian nation per se. That wasn't their idea. Their idea is to establish or was to establish religious freedom so everybody can worship in the way that they want to worship. And so in 1791, those of you that know your American history, Jefferson and Madison were able to get through an amendment on the Constitution guaranteeing religious freedom. Now, departing from that subject, I want to go on to talk to you tonight about the growth of Baptist churches in America. And Baptists have really had a phenomenal growth in this country. Not by any means is it an, was it an easy growth. I mean, Baptist preachers, as I said, before they won their freedom and before we won religious freedom, uh, they were thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. But that doesn't mean that the Baptist church in, in slowed down in any degree. No, these men that were thrown into prison continued to preach. And there's lots of stories about how that people would gather around the windows of the jails and they would listen to the, to the preachers as they continued to preach to the people about the gospel of Christ. I mean, that story is an old one about John Bunyan, who in England did the same thing at the Bedford Jail for 13 years. He was in prison for preaching the gospel, but he never stopped. He just kept preaching it right out of the windows. So Baptist people at least have been like this, like, like Paul and Silas. At midnight in the jails, they're still preaching, they're still singing, they're still people that are being one to the Lord through the preaching of Baptist people. Now, the problem, though, that Baptists began to encounter along the way was uh, that in the northeastern part of the country, where they first started to gain a foothold, the congregational church there had the support of the government. The ministers were paid out of, out of the taxes of the people, and Baptists were against this church-state government thing. They didn't like paying ministers, especially ministers who they thought weren't preaching the whole truth. And so early in the 1700s, the congregationalists were starting to drift away from their theological moorings, and, and uh, uh, they drifted away from the truth that they had, and, and things just really got worse. The spiritual condition of the country got much, much worse, and so the, the Baptist people stopped paying taxes. Now, I'm not recommending you do that as a Baptist, but they stopped paying taxes. They would not support the government because they were supporting preachers that were increasingly apostate. And because of that, they were jailed, and their property was confiscated and sold to pay their taxes. Well, that brings us into the next period that saw a great change in the religious climate of America. 
Now before, what we're going to talk about now, the congregational church, as I said, in the Northeast was pretty much in control, but they were at a very, very low spiritual ebb. That brings us to the period of the Great Awakening. And that is in 1731 to 1756. So here is the congregational church getting colder and colder, becoming even more lifeless. And accordingly, the spirituality of New England was going down and suffering greatly. And one of the things that we ought not to fool ourselves into thinking is that all of our forefathers in America were all very, very spiritual people because they weren't. This was the time that we're talking about then. The age of enlightenment was going on. And that's not the age of religious enlightenment. People weren't turning to the Lord, but rather they were starting to turn to science. They were starting to uh, redefine the role of man in nature and the interaction or the lack of interaction that God has with his people. And so they were messed up about that. And this, this, this age, the age of enlightenment and the spiritual things that were going on in that time in America heavily influenced people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, and I'll, I'll just tell you the short of that. A deist is not a Christian. A deist is not a person who believes in the deity of Jesus Christ and believes he's actually the Son of God and that he's the maker of this universe. A deist, a deist does not believe that. So Thomas Jefferson, although he did think that there were many good things about Jesus Christ, good things that he taught, he also believed that Jesus was very wrong on some things and that he was even harmful and so Thomas Jefferson, in no sense of the word, was actually a proponent of the cause of Jesus Christ. So, again, we ought not to think that all the founders of our country were, were actually Christian because they weren't. But it was in the middle of this upheaval of religious thought and the coldness of the congregational church that America's greatest theologian, the greatest scholar born in America, began to preach. And that was Jonathan Edwards. And he began his preaching in New England, in the heart of New England, in Northampton, Massachusetts. And in 1732, he gave a lecture in Boston on the sovereignty of God in salvation, in which he said that God, by an act of his own will, gives faith for salvation to whomsoever he pleases. Now, as you know, that's a doctrine that's very, very widely hated today. But in those days, that sparked the greatest revival that has ever happened on American soil. It was in that time that Edward preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it said that during that sermon that people were so convicted by what he said that they began to cry out for God to save them from hell lest they fall in. And so a great revival came about through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, but by the year 1737, the revival in America had all but died out. And so in 1740, there was another great preacher that arrived in America, and his name was George Whitfield. And Whitfield was also thoroughly convinced of the doctrines of grace, as was Jonathan Edwards. But the difference between Whitfield and Edwards was that Edwards was thoroughly a theologian. There's no doubt about that. If you read some of what Jonathan Edwards wrote, he was a great theologian. Whereas Whitfield not, was not the theologian that Edwards was, but he was thoroughly an evangelist. Whitfield was a real orator where Edwards was not. 
Now, there were thousands of people that were converted under Jonathan Edwards' preaching, but no one had ever seen the kinds of crowds and, and the many converts that came to Christ under Whitfield's preaching. Whitfield may very well have been the greatest preacher that is, the world has ever seen since the time of the New Testament, and that might even include Charles Spurgeon. And, we, of course, none of us has ever heard the delivery of either Whitfield or Spurgeon, so we can't make that call. But Whitfield was a tremendous preacher. He was someone who was actually able to make the gospel sing, so to speak. And so there were crowds that came to hear him, and the crowds got so large that pretty soon they overcrowded all the church buildings. A church couldn't hold the crowds that came to hear Whitfield, and so he moved his preaching out of doors, and he just preached in the fields... And there were upwards of 15,000 people that would come to hear George Whitfield preach. And that was in a day when you didn't have sound systems and you didn't have technicians like Bob and Steve to make it so we could hear what was being said. But George Whitfield must have been some kind of a preacher to be able to preach to all of those people. Well, the Holy Spirit was in Whitfield's preaching and there were thousands that came to Christ. And so what started out in, in 1737 was now sweeping the churches of New England. And then Whitfield took his preaching to the south where exactly the same thing happened. He went into the southern colonies, began to preach, and thousands more converts were made. Now, Whitfield's preaching uh, included a heavy dose of human responsibility, and he put that with the sovereignty of God. And that's a biblical thing to do. And that biblical preaching brought about a response, a good response that resonated. The Lord used that. And so Whitfield would encourage people to repent of their sins and to get r right with God. He had this very strong evangelistic bent to his preaching, and yet he never did stray from the doctrines of grace. He believed in election and predestination and the effectual call of the Spirit. The very same things that people complain about today and say if you preach God's sovereignty, that is incompatible with evangelism. They say you can't encourage people to come to Christ and at the same time tell them they have no ability to come to Christ. You can't preach those kinds of things. It's discouraging to tell people that God has an elect that he's going to save. You can't preach those kinds of things because that's not evangelistic. Well, Whitfield, who was the greatest evangelist in America, had this to say about it. He said, Christ laid down his life for his enemies, even for you, if you are enabled to humble yourselves as the publican did. Whitfield preached, you can by no means by your own power come and believe on Christ, then Lazarus could come forth from the grave. Now neither of those statements was a barrier to the salvation of souls and that's evidenced by the thousands of conversions that were made. Now that just goes to show you that you can't improve on God's plan by changing the message. God is the one who does the saving, and it's the Holy Spirit who takes the preached word, and he's the one that makes his word effectual in the heart of the hearer. Now, I want you to keep those statements in mind, because that's going to come back to us later. We're going to talk about in another week or so about a revi another revival in America. And in that revival, the, 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 the theology was changed by some, and it almost caused the near ruination of preaching in the entire Northeast, in the same place where Whitfield and Edwards were so successful with the gospel. Now... Whitfield was, was conducting all of these great revivals and many people were being saved. 
But those of you that know church history and you've studied these things out, you know that Whitfield was not a Baptist. Now, there's a lot of argument about what he really was. Some people say, well, he was a Methodist. But if he was a Methodist, he wasn't like John Wesley, who was preaching at the same time. In fact, uh, Wesley and Whitfield traveled together often, and they often argued. And that's because Wesley was an Arminian who denied God's election. Actually, Wesley even believed that a person could lose his salvation. But Whitfield and, and uh, Wesley did travel together, and, and God has a way of using uh, the gospel in the way that he wants to use it, and people were saved under both those men's preaching. But there's confusion about what Whitfield was, and so there are some who claim that Whitfield was a Congregationalist. I mean, he agreed with Jonathan Edwards in the Doctrines of Grace, and fortunately, he also agreed with him on infant baptism. But the most important thing that concerns us right now is what effect did Whitfield's preaching have on Baptist people? And this is where you have this a really peculiar phenomenon that happened with Whitfield's preaching. Now, what he did was he very strongly encouraged his converts to get into church and start serving the Lord. I mean, Whitfield was very big about personal commitment. He was big on, on doing good works. Christians ought to live their faith. They ought to do good works. And that kind of preaching actually attracted men like Benjamin Franklin. Now, Franklin was a deist just like, um, like Jefferson was. He didn't believe that Whitfield's theology was right, but he did like this kind of preaching. He did like to hear this preaching about people doing good works for others. And so what... Benjamin Franklin did was to start printing Whitfield sermons. Now, you think God's not in control of things? Here's a man who doesn't believe with the preaching itself, but God took Benjamin Franklin, as you know, was a printer, and, and Franklin helped to distribute Whitfield sermons. And people were saved, of course, through the reading of Whitfield sermons. So Whitfield was encouraging people to get into church. But you know what happened? What do you think would happen when... when they started to go back to these dead, lifeless, congregational churches. Nothing's going on there. The Presbyterian churches were the same. What they saw in the church bore no resemblance to what had happened in their heart. And so they looked for something else. They started to turn to the Baptist. Now, Baptist beliefs were much more appealing. Baptists weren't mired in cold, dead orthodoxy. And strangely enough, even though the George Whitfield wasn't a Baptist preacher, yet Baptist churches benefited tremendously under the preaching of Whitfield. In 1737, when the Great Awakening began, there were 37 Baptist churches in America with 3,000 members. In 1790, there were 872 Baptist churches with 65,000 members. And so the Baptists were benefiting tremendously from the Great Awakening and the preaching of Whitfield. And that mass conversion to the Baptist was a little bit perplexing to, to Whitfield, and so he actually made this statement. He said, my children have become ducks. Do you understand what that means? Does anybody know what that means? My children have become ducks? Well, he believed in infant baptism. Now he's turned all these Baptists into immersionists. They've become ducks, he said. So they're no longer baby sprinklers. They'll Baptist churches were growing in leaps and bounds. Thousands upon thousands converted under Edwards and then many more thousands under Whitfield. This is what historian W.A. Gerald wrote. He said, some of the converts joined the existing churches, 
but a large number formed separate churches requiring satisfactory evidence that the candidates for communion were the subjects of regeneration. This New Testament rule had been departed from by the standing order, and the new lights, as they were called, determined to reinstate primitive principles in their proper place. The natural effect was that many of them became Baptist. And that makes sense. I mean, who else was preaching regenerate church membership? The Baptists were the only ones that were doing that. Now, what Congregationalists and Presbyterians would do, they would accept infants into the membership of the church with a limited membership, but when those infants or those children got older or became adults, they never actually did convert to Christ, and so they were still committed to come to the communion. That's what W.A. Gerald was talking about in that quote. And so these people are looking for a church where the membership is regenerate that comes to the communion. And they couldn't find that among the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians, so they turned to the Baptist. And so now you have Baptist churches that are growing. And all of these Baptist churches, these aren't people that are sitting on their hands. These are people that are also very evangelistic. They're people that are holding tenaciously to the doctrines of grace. And that's really not, not something that can be disproven. Uh, Baptists today have to dance all around this to try to explain this with the history that we have. But let's move on, because I want to talk to you about another thing that happened, another development during that time, and that was the camp meeting, a camp, the camp meeting. And, and that's not to be confused with the Pioneer Club camp meeting at Clear Lake. Not that camp meeting, but this, these camp meetings were started by pioneers. Now, at the time of the turn of the 19th century, it wasn't like you could ride into town, and there you would find ten Baptist churches in ten different neighborhoods and tall spires on churches, and you pick the one that you want to go to church. Now, you didn't see things like that. Now, you might see one or two of those where Baptist churches got large like that, but for the most part, Baptist people weren't into this big building type of thing. And, and Baptists were not the aristocrats, and Baptists had never been that. 1 Corinthians, Paul said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And that's held, through, held consistently throughout history of the church. So the Baptist movement in America was not the aristocrats. It was among the farmers. It was among the daily workers, just like it's always been. And Whitfield preached to those people. And when he preached, he moved them with the gospel. And these people had a desire to take the gospel with them. And they began to move to, to other areas. The Great Awakening had a tremendous impact on the South, and it was in the South especially that people were beginning to push out beyond the original colonies. They were looking for new land to move to, uh, new places to plant their crops, to hunt, and so forth. And the Baptist church through this time was growing in the South, and it was during that time that frontiersmen without churches... No church buildings to hold church in would have their meetings in their camps. Now, if you ever wondered, where did the Wednesday night prayer meeting come from? We don't see that in the Bible. Here's the origin. It came out of the camp meetings in the, in the early 19th century of this country. So, by this time, the, the fires of the Great Awakening, the fires of that revival were starting to burn low, especially among the Congregationalists. But the Baptists were still experiencing a revival. In 1745 in Connecticut, there was a man by the name of Shubal Stearns who was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield. 
And he became a Baptist in 1751 and then later moved to Sandy Creek, North Carolina. Now, Sandy Creek is in the area of, uh, I think, that Liberty, North Carolina. And at that, uh, that's actually in the middle of the state, but at that time it was right on the frontier. And Shubal Stearns went there in 1755 and he ministered to the backwoodsmen of, woodsmen of that area. He started a church there, became missionary to those people, and through his preaching the whole backcountry became populated with Baptist people. Still today, you go to North Carolina and you'll find Baptist churches dotting the countryside everywhere, especially in western North Carolina. They're just all over the place through the hills there. So, so the Baptists who were, were, became the pioneers of new areas that opened up in this country. And I know that, that most of you have probably heard of Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone was living in western North Carolina at this time. And, and he blazed the Wilderness Road into Kentucky through the Cumberland Gap, and, and he established a fort at Boonesboro, Kentucky. That was just first opening up the state of Kentucky. And, and his brother, Squire Boone, who accompanied him, was a Baptist preacher. Now, all this took place within just miles of where I lived in Kentucky, and still some of the old Baptist churches that got started back then, even the one that Squire Boone attended is, is still there, and uh, um, the preacher of that church used to be a very good friend of ours. But over the next um, 50 years, from 1775, there were thousands of people that traveled along the Wilderness Road because that was the main road that came across the Appalachian Mountains into the new area. And so in 1781, there was a Baptist preacher by the name of Lewis Craig who led a group of people, 600 people, through the Cumberland Gap. And this group of people, this sixth group of 600 people, was known as the Traveling Church. These were all Baptists. They were known as the Traveling Church. And what they had done, Elijah Craig was, you know, he's the preacher. He's the center of the community. That whole community of 600 people picked up and decided they were going to move. I'm waiting for you to do that because I want to get out of California. So let's, let's all of us just pick up and move and go to Kentucky. Anybody in favor? Oh, a few of you. Okay, all right, all right, we're ready to go. Well, that's actually what happened. They just picked up everybody, I mean, the whole town. And they left and they went into Kentucky, and this was called the Traveling Church. Now, when my dad pastored in Kentucky when I was young, uh, he, we pa he pastored a church that was just a few miles from where the traveling church came through, and we would cross that trail of the traveling church every time that we went to church on Sunday. And I had a very, we had a very good friend who was pastor of a church that was started, one of the churches that was started out of the traveling church. I got a picture of their sign and, the, and a picture of the church here tonight. The Gilberts Creek Baptist Church is the third oldest Baptist church in Kentucky, started out of the traveling church. Then you see the picture of the church itself there, and uh, that's what it looks like today. But this, this is a really a remarkable thing that this church and many others like it got started out of this group of 600 people that came into Kentucky. This particular church was organized in 1781. That makes it 233 years old. They're still going strong. When, when they first met in this area, they built a, a stockade. They kept two armed guards at the door to watch for Indian attacks. 
Now, today I understand that they've been attacked by Arminians and there weren't any guards at the door, and so that caused the problem. But, um, but that Baptist church is still there. I said a very good friend of ours was uh, with the pastor there. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, it's because of those camp meetings. Along the, the trail, when they had no churches to meet in before they could ever get up their stockades and so forth to build a church, build a log church to meet, they would have church in the camps. Well, that tradition of the church camp continued after they got settled in Kentucky and other places. It continued for quite a while. And what they would do is even after they had their meeting places, they would still invite people from all over the countryside to come and have church with them in the camp. Now, that leads me into the next part of this. In 1801, there was a very significant event that happened just 20 miles from my house in Kentucky. It was the largest camp meeting that was ever held, and it fueled the Second Great Awakening. Now, that's what I want to talk to you about now, the Second Great Awakening from 1790 to 1840. Now, this awakening started in 1790, but when 1801 came, and this camp meeting was held at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Have I got the picture up there? When this camp meeting was held at Cane Ridge, Kentucky in 1801, this is what really fueled the revival all across the frontier of America. Daniel Boone had named this area in 1791, and there was a meeting house that was built there, which was the largest single log structure meeting house in America. It seats 500 people, and it's still there today. There's a brick building that, that surrounds it now. They built around it in order to protect it. And at this meeting, there were 18 Presbyterian ministers. There were Methodist ministers. There were Baptists. There was a crowd of 20,000 people that met there. There was preaching that was going on for several days in many different places of the camp. And the newspapers at that time called this the most significant religious event in American history. Now, I've told you how good that the first great awakening was for Baptist. But by the time that the second great awakening was over, now through the great awakening, many more Baptist churches were started. But by the time that the second great awakening was over, the country was facing a theological crisis, a theological disaster. Now, some would disagree with me on that, but that's when things started to shift away and uh, for shift away from the things that were preached in the first great awakening. Now, at Cane Ridge, Barton Stone, and you might want to remember that name, Barton Stone was a Presbyterian minister who started what was called the Restoration Movement. He said that New Testament Christianity needed to be restored. Now, what he believed was that the New Testament church had been corrupted and the church needed to be straightened out. And so Stone left the Presbyterians, and he, along with Alexander Campbell, became the founders of the Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church, and the Church of Christ. Now, when I mention those three names, all of them come from the very same stock. They all started out of Cane Ridge, which now claims to be the oldest Church of Christ in America. These are the very same people that we in Kentucky disaffectionately call Campbellites. They are perverters not restores of the New Testament church. The theology of the Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, at least coming out, in, uh, coming out of this time with Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, is that they were Pelagians. They were believed in baptismal regeneration. 
And that has been the bane of the New Testament church since the very earliest of times. For 2,000 years now, baptismal regeneration has been the great, one of the great heresies of the church. And when the, when the Camelites got their start, they made baptismal regeneration their signature doctrine. And on several occasions, I've told you how bad were the effects that Campbellism had on Baptist churches. Right there in, in my area in, in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky, you can, you can go to places where you can see one of these old historic Baptist churches over 200 years old, and within just a half a mile, a mile or even less, there will be one of these churches that was split off of a Baptist church over the issue of baptismal regeneration. Now, just to refresh you all again on what baptismal regeneration is, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's what they teach. And you'll find that that doctrine split all of these Baptist churches, and so the countryside is littered with a Baptist church, then a Church of Christ or Christian church and so forth, who believes in baptismal regeneration. So that was one of the things that, that, that came out of the Second Great Awakening. There was the restoration movement. Well, the beginning of Campbellism was bad enough, but perhaps the worst that came out of the Second Great Awakening, just, just very, well, actually was a little bit of what was going on concurrently with the Second Great Awakening, and that was the revivalist movement. Well, that's what I'm going to talk to you about next time, and that's when theology really started a downward shift, and, and what Baptists taught about salvation, what we teach in this church, began to decline. Now, that wasn't a rapid pace downward, it took a while, but the re repercussions of it have been felt all the way in the 20th and the 21st century. And this is what contributes to the sad mix-up of understanding of what Baptist people believed about the doctrines of grace. It was during that time that Baptists of the South actually became the great defenders of the faith. The Baptist church saturated the South in the years before the Civil War. And just before the Civil War... The Southern Baptist Convention was born. And out of that convention came some of the greatest Baptist people that we have in America, some of the greatest theologians. And there never was really any hesitation about what those people believed when they started the Southern Baptist Convention because the schools that they had taught the very same things that I teach you in the church here. I mean, I, I have the theology books and, that were written by many of those men and they describe the same doctrines that I've, that I've taught you. But unfortunately, what happened in the Southern Baptist Church is that they embraced the leftovers of revivalism at the end of the uh, 19th century and on into the 20th century. And it wasn't until about 40 years ago that there actually became a resurgence among Southern Baptists to return to the right theology. That, that's been a real fight for them. Many, many people have fought against that resurgence in the convention. But I do understand now, at least I think the statistic is, that the Southern Baptist Convention is graduating about 35% of the people out of their seminary who teach doctrines of grace. Well, that's the point that I want to end tonight. And next week, I, I want to come back to this and talk about that uh, revivalism that came in the middle of the late 19th century. And we're going to discuss some of the the theology, we're going to get into some more Bible here in the next couple of weeks as we look at what went wrong, uh, what has changed, and we're going to talk about some of the major proponents of revivalism and how that influenced the Baptist. And that influence has an effect right down to the very songs that we sing in our, in our churches today. But before I close, let me tell you one more thing about the Restoration Movement. Uh, I don't want to, uh, to leave this particular part out. The Mormons 
also that started at this time claimed to be the restorers of the church. We know how very far, we know well how very far they are off on things, off on the deity of Christ. They don't believe that Jesus is eternal God. And several times I've told you, this is, the, this is the issue that you run into. When you find people who say the church needs to be reformed, the church needs to be jump-started, the church needs to be restored, then you know you've got a problem because the true church of Christ has always been here because he promised it. He didn't need anybody to fix it. It's going just the way that he wants it to go with the people he wants to handle it. So I'm just going to tell you this. It matters where you go to church. It seriously matters where you go to church. We're still preaching what Jesus and the apostles preached. We haven't changed the message. And what I want this church to be is a link to the future. So that when people look back, they'll look at the history of Berean Baptist Church and they'll hear the messages that have been preached and they'll say, there actually was a church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Rona Park, California. And I think that there are people going to say, that's really hard to believe it's hard to believe when you look at this area, when you look at the, at the morality that we endure every single day around and we see what's going, 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 happening here, people are going to say, could there have been a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in a place like that? Well, there was one in Corinth, and there was one in Athens, and there was one in uh, Rome, and... Those were some of the worst places of idolatry and worst sin that you could ever imagine. God can put his church wherever he wants it. doesn't make any difference how wicked the world around it is. That's what God's in the business of doing, isn't it? Changing lost sinners into believers in Jesus Christ. So we, we stick by this. We, we, haven't, we haven't lost our identity into the modern church, the modern Christianity that we have today. We haven't lost our identity into the things of the world. We still believe this, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we just keep on preaching it and we'll leave these sermons behind and the records of the good people of Brian Baptist Church who trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. We thank you so much for uh, the history that we have to look, in, look into tonight and to learn about. Uh, we thank thankful, Lord, that you have a church and we can meet here we thank you for the freedoms that we have and how we just ought to bless your name every single day that we're able to stand here and do what we do. Bless your people, Lord. Help us to learn more about you. May we be witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.